0: You're listening to This Rhetorical Life, a podcast dedicated to the practice, pedagogy, and public circulation of rhetoric in our lives. Well, it's Ben, and I'm introducing a two-part interview with Ira Shore, the well-known teacher and writer, proponent of critical okay. pedagogy, and collaborator with Paulo Freire. So this is Yanira? Yanira Rodriguez, Tamara Isak, and I met Shore at his home in Montclair, New Jersey. Ira's son, Paulo, introduced us to zebra finches, who appear in the background of this recording. In part one of our interview, it's Shore tells us about growing up in the Bronx, the his early experiences of education, joining social movements, practicing critical pedagogy, and his first encounters and early collaboration with the Brazilian educator Paulo Freire. And the father up here, Rex. Rex. Yeah, Rex. Before we run the tape, I need to make a note about the editing. We could have easily cut the two-hour conversation down to a 30-minute or one-hour interview on critical pedagogy and Shore but we're giving you the whole thing with very few edits from the original conversation. Shore is a storyteller and we get him talking about the process of making a talking book with Freire, a book that became a pedagogy of liberation. We talk with him down to the process of recording transcription and translation. The conversation opens up a variety of sub themes that we hope people in the field will use and benefit from. For example, in thinking about how to collaborate on a book between languages and social contexts or if we edited down elsewhere you would miss an interesting story about frary and race that doesn't necessarily tie into the themes raised in part one of this interview but that give insight that is perhaps not available elsewhere we hope you enjoy it and check back next week for part two where we talk about social movements political possibilities and the current state of higher education here we go with part one with yanir asking the first question about shore's background
1: so I guess this is a bit of a self-interested question since I also grew up in the Bronx,
0: born there in the 70s, grew up there in the 80s. Um, so just wanting
1: to hear from you uh, about growing up in the South Bronx and sure. kind of sort of where, how did that end up influencing your path? Um, the South Bronx that I grew up in uh, was uh, all white and almost entirely Jewish, the, uh, the neighborhood in this, uh, that I grew up along Brooklyn Boulevard. And uh, this, were, we went to public schools. The public schools are pretty mediocre, uh, and I found it fairly easy to just do the work. But I did get into trouble until fifth grade because I was very bored in school, so my mother had to continually come to school because the teachers were unhappy with me. And so uh, that got more and more intense until I finally had to just keep quiet in the sixth grade and uh, swallow... Uh, my boredom. I think all the kids were bored, and um, the schooling was not um, uh, interesting enough for, for children. Uh, so then I got into the Bronx High School of Science uh, when I was about 13, and that changed everything because I finally got into a school that was very demanding, very high powered, and where uh, the, uh, the kids who had been going to the private high schools in New York City uh, went. Because after they uh, went from K-8 to private school, then uh, getting into the Bronx High School of Science at that time was that was the best public high school in the country, and their parents wanted them to go there for free. So somehow I managed to join them, and I discovered uh, what it was like to be uh, what what it was like to sit next to a teenager from an affluent family, and how they dressed, and they had good complexions, and I wondered how that happened because nobody I grew up with had a good complexion. They all had nice teeth. I had terrible teeth. All my friends had terrible teeth. I wore my brother's clothes, the hand-me-downs. They had their own clothes. So it was like a very uh, sudden uh, contact with class differences because the, the schools I went to in the neighborhood, uh, we were all from the same so- social class. So It was an education for me, but it also uh, caused me a lot of um, I don't know doubt, anxiety about... Um, who I was, and I began to feel insecure that I was uh, ugly, badly dressed, that I smelled bad, that my hair was too oily, that my skin was too pimply, my teeth were too cracked, and so on. Uh, so that took a while. Uh, but then uh, I uh, got uh, uh, decided to leave home, and I went to the University of Michigan, and um, uh, just um, really enjoyed being away from the the Bronx, which I, I found um, just uh, not... Um, there was no one, there was no, I'd never, when I was a boy, I was expected to become like a college graduate and, a, and an M.D., and I never met anyone who went to college when I was growing up. Nobody in my neighbor went to college. My father dropped out of school in the ninth grade. My mother just managed to finish high school. So I felt kind of adrift at sea, like uh, what, you know, I didn't know how to fashion myself or what does it mean to have this goal or... What to do, and uh, my parents couldn't afford to buy books, so there were no books in the house. The only thing they they, they decided to buy was uh, the uh, the um, World Book Encyclopedia. And when I was about 12 or 13, they acquired it. It was the only thing to read in the house, so I read through the World Book Encyclopedia A to Z twice, and I I just loved it. It was just I buried myself in it, and so I began to think that knowledge was just the accumulation of facts alphabetically. And so I thought that's how you become smart. You start with A, and everything in the world went from A to B to C to D. And that if you memorized everything up to C, then you know you were you were you were going places. Very very strange ex- experience. And uh, then I went off to Michigan, and things changed a lot there because it was uh, very far away.
0: So, following up from that uh, kind of childhood experiences, we were curious of you know. Where were you at, and just who were you as a person when you discovered critical pedagogy? When that became your vocation and your path?
1: Yes. So um, the uh, the anti-war movement uh, began when I was about 19 years old, um, and it uh, spread spread uh, pretty pretty quickly around uh, around the nation. Uh, so, at being an undergraduate at um, at Michigan. Uh, I, was, uh, I was just very drawn to uh, the protests, that whatever protests were, were being raised, and, and I can't even remember why. I felt that uh, somehow things were, not, things were not right and that uh, we had to um, speak up about them and whatever. So I started going around 1965 to all kinds of, uh, of protests, and then I did, as I uh, mentioned earlier to you folks, I did uh, run across Mario Savio, who was the, you know, the iconic leader of the uh, free speech movement at Berkeley in 1964. December, he came to University of Michigan in Auburn in March of '65. Um, and gave a talk on the quadrangle that uh, hundreds of students came, and I thought he was wonderfully articulate. I wanted to be as smart as him. I wanted to be as articulate as him. He looked uh, very handsome. I wanted to be handsome, and <laughs> so on. So he, he became one of my uh, you know heroes uh, there because of his, his ability to articulate uh, so clearly what was, what was going on. Then uh, at Michigan, the first teach-in against the war in the world took place in March of 1965. It was an all-night, 12-hour teach-in. And so I happened to be at a campus that had an historic moment, uh, and teach-ins began to follow all around uh, the nation after the one at Ann Arbor in March of '65. So it was a very exciting time to, to be young, and I suddenly found myself in protest meetings with my professors, which created a whole different relationship with the teacher than uh, attending a class, and I I really enjoyed being in a room on this sort of like, uh, with them, uh, for some other project that we had something in common uh, besides the hierarchy of teacher and student. I found that uh, exciting, and I just was determined that I wanted to uh, become as smart as all the people who were talking up there, and they all seemed so well-informed and so uh, confident in uh, how the world worked. And what was going on? And I thought, uh, boy, I, I had no idea that that this was uh, this knowledge was available, and that uh, I had to go out and find it and figure it out. So I just kept getting more involved. And by the time I got to uh, graduate school at Wisconsin, I particularly picked going to Madison because it had an active anti-war movement uh, at at that time in 1966. And when I uh, got out there. I looked for different groups to join SDS and different anti-war groups and different student power groups and so on. And uh, Madison was like non-stop protests for years, year after year after year. So it was a wonderful place and a wonderful time to be young and interested in like uh, changing the world and questioning the status quo because so many people, so many people your age were doing it with you. And fortunately, there were graduate students who were older than me, who were uh, smarter and uh, much, much uh, cleverer at uh, making sense out of what was going on. So I um, I was lucky to have uh, been mentored by a few graduate students then, who I hung out with, and I could listen to the way they talked about things, and that helped me uh, that helped me uh, move ahead. When it came to critical pedagogy, uh, I became very active in the English uh PhD program. We had um, a student uh, group there, a graduate student group, and then I became very active in the Teaching Assistant Association, two uh, projects that were under underway then, both of which were treated with great hostility by the uh, English Department administ- administration. So I went to um, meetings in the English Department and kept raising questions and challenging the chair, and then I was asked to be... Um, to organize the, uh, the union election for the Teaching Assistant Association in uh, 1969 uh, to certify the union as the sole representative. So I took on that task, went around all all departments, got familiar with all the folks in different departments, and we won that election, so that was a big celebration. And then we began negotiating with the university for a contract, and they offered really terrible terms, so we rejected the contract, and then we planned for a strike. In the spring of 1970, and I was asked to be uh, what they called the um, the marshal of the um, uh, the marshal of the picket lines. Uh, that is, I was supposed to go around to all the doors where uh, the picket lines were, and uh, um, follow the chief of police as he went around to uh, make sure that uh, the police were not provoking any incidents, and to also be the official witness. Of the uh, TAA, the Teaching Assistant Association, in case any anybody was arrested and came to court, my job was to take notes and observe and testify in court and so on. So that that went on for about we went on strike for about five and a half weeks, and that was a very important um, episode. We were we formed then the first uh, graduate student union in America it was the Teaching Assistant Association, and we finally negotiated our first our first contract and um, so on and it was a very big education for me. And, um, I, I happened to work with uh, graduate students who I found were extremely responsible and reliable. And for one of the few times I felt I was part of an organization that um, you really could count on, everybody doing his or her job, that who, whoever had to do something, they showed up and uh, they got it done on time. And, um, and uh, nobody was trying to push anybody around or take anything anybody over and um, we actually had a collaborative decision making and I thought this was wonderful Uh, and I looked forward to we got to do more of it but then what happened everybody graduates and when you graduate this is what's so unstable about graduate school everybody graduates and then we disperse you know all over the all over the universe and um, and uh, that's very uh, disorienting and so after we had accomplished a few things in graduate school, we all wound up in different places, and in a sense, um, we took our experiences with us. But uh, my, uh, my problem when I arrived at Staten Island Community College in 1971 is that I, I felt like I, I was all alone. I mean there I didn't know anybody there. And, and in a way, we had to start all over again to figure out this, this new scene. So there was, a really very difficult lack of continuity that uh, constantly posed the problems for us.
0: Can you talk a bit about starting at Staten Island Community College and your early teaching methods and how that developed?
1: So when I got to Staten Island College and found myself suddenly an assistant professor uh, and no longer a graduate student and no longer with a group of like uh, comrades or colleagues or associates who had spent years together doing this or that, I had to start all over again and uh, i also had to be a teacher and uh, i encountered working class white students uh, who um, were always the uh, the least welcome uh, cohort uh, the working class was always the least welcome cohort in higher education so these were always the c students in high school who pr- typically before had not gone on to college they were the first generation in their families to go to college and as uh, so I began teaching for them, uh, teaching freshman comp, which now is called first year, first year writing, and I was teaching different media courses and so on. And um, I was a very traditional teacher when we started. I uh, thought that uh, what these students never got was good grammar, and that I I went and I studied grammar books, and I was going to now teach grammar item by item until you know they they never put a dangling participle on the page again. But you know, this, um, they, the students were so wonderful. They were so generous. Uh, I was totally confused and totally boring, and they put up with me. I I still don't know why they put up with me. Uh, Maybe because uh, I wasn't much older than them. Maybe because I dressed like them. Maybe because my Bronx accent was so typically urban working class like theirs was. And uh, maybe because I brought cookies to class, maybe because I lent them money when they were broke—I don't know—but whatever happened was is that they seemed happy to be there, even though I was blundering from thing to thing. And then, uh, but uh, you know, I couldn't fool myself, and I have to say, look—you uh, know—I'm really happy to be here. I was talking to myself in the mirror. I'm really happy to be here, but I don't think anything is working. I don't think this is serious. I don't think I'm delivering a serious education. So I had to start all over again and think like, uh, what, is, what does it mean to be a, an English teacher for, for working class students who have so far have received the worst education available in America? So I said, um, I wasn't sure what the answer was because I hadn't studied education, but I, I had an intuition that I had to uh, study my own development first. That I had to ask, say, you began in the working class, I said to myself, you began in the white working class like, like they are in now. And you slowly you began speaking non-standard dialect like they did, and you did not understand academic discourse and how to write, and you were awkward uh, like they, they are in the college uh, setting, and um, you um, you know you're, you you had no table manners, you chewed with your mouth open, and, and so on and so on, and that you you know you fit right in to this whole scene. So how did what are you doing now? How did you become different? And why did you make a decision to question the status quo and join opposition movements and start opposition movements and to raise hell where, you know, wherever possible? I said, how did that happen to you? And uh, so I first began to study, uh, study myself, my intellectual development, my political development, my cognitive development, and so on, and how I got to this place I was in. And I started uh, looking at my thinking and drawing diagrams about the way I thought, how I thought about the world. And then I, uh, then I tried to figure out, like, cognitive structures of how my head worked on problems in the world. And then I said, all right, let me, try to, let me take this cognitive structure, these, these diagrams to class and see how they work. So if you look at my first book that I finished in 1979 called Critical Teaching in Everyday Life, you'll see that I put in there the first diagrams I came up with that represent to me uh, how I learned to think critically about the world and so on. And I began using them in class and presenting them to the students and asking them to test this activity, test that activity. And uh, I was very surprised because um, they liked doing it. I was so amazed. It made sense to them. It gave them uh, a way of working. In the classroom, that where I didn't have to lecture all the time, I put up a diagram and the diagram indicated like a sequence of activities that they undertook. Then they began to give different names to the diagram. I give my name, then one of them would suggest, like one of them eventually suggested, as I write in the book, that we call my diagrams the open donut because it was a three sided structure. I don't even remember what I called it, but I, once he suggested it, I I decided open donut was it, and so on. Anyhow, so that's how I got started in what. I think we call critical literacy or critical pedagogy or critical teaching. And I started by examining as carefully as I could my own development to the point where I became like a radical version of a working-class kid, a white working-class kid, and now I was teaching classrooms full of working-class kids who were not radical. And what did that mean? And so that's what my first book, Critical Teaching in Everyday Life, recorded, that, that first contact. With uh, developing a um, critical teaching methods.
0: So first, I want you to set the record straight for how mm-hmm. to pronounce Paolo's last name.
1: Okay, uh, Paulo's last name is pronounced Ferrari. and um, you know it's a it's difficult for Anglo speakers. But I, I always comically advise uh, people because uh, I travel the Staten Island ferry a lot. Take the word ferry and just add an R after the F, and you'll get the Freri, and that's that's fine, Freri.
0: So I was wondering if you could describe your first time or uh, when you first met Paulo Freire and his work.
1: Yes, uh, so um, I was uh, working at Staten Island Community College and getting more and more interested in what it meant to, to I began to use the, very critical liter- the words critical literacy. What does it mean to develop critical literacy among uh, mostly white working class students who come from a very conservative background? And so I, I, um, I was testing this method and other methods that I mentioned and how to use different themes, uh, and I began to uh, stop uh, using textbooks and uh, literature books, and I started um, using uh, materials that were very close to the experiences of everyday life that the students had. I somehow intuited that I, I had to study their uh their culture, their language, and their, the way they saw the world uh, as uh, the the material for the syllabus. Uh, so I began to bring in different uh, items uh, from um, from Staten Island, from New York uh, City, and and so on, and to uh, pose them in the classroom, but not lecture on them. I would like present a situation and ask students to write about it, and then have a discussion about it, and then I would talk into the discussion. So I was I was starting to test like what is known as a problem-posing dialogic method, that it's problem-posing because instead of delivering a lecture on some material, I pose a problem that's legible and meaningful to the students based in uh, the language and the uh, conditions that are um, are meaningful to them. And uh, then as that conversation develops, I enter the conversation um, uh, as it proceeds and pose more questions to pull it forward. This is what I found myself intuiting year by year as I tested it. And um, so I began to pose problems about, uh, okay, where, who, who's working? Where, what jobs do you work at? And then I posed questions about, okay, when you go out dating, uh, what happens? And uh, do the fam- your families have uh, different rules for the boys dating in the family than for the girls dating in the family? And uh, where, where do folks uh, live? And um, what's, uh, what about transportation? How do you, how do you uh, get around? And so I began to s- pose these questions about uh, their everyday experience, that from which we would started to develop texts. And then I began to pose, like uh, what uh, Pierre Bourdieu I discovered, like uh, you know a little later on, called possible possibles. That is, like, uh, what if I posed a uh, question like um, of something that was just one step outside the student experience? Like, for example, um, that time the gay liberation movement was very powerful. In Manhattan and because we had the, the Stonewall riots in June of 69 and a, a gay activist alliance and a gay liberation feder- front gay liberation front starting in New York and uh, two uh, key figures of this happened to be on the uh, department it's that the the English Department of Staten Island my colleagues and one of them became my best friend that I traveled around a lot with and I became friends with the other anyhow so I was just drawn into now posing, trying to test themes that were not exactly situated in the everyday experience but posed problematic possibilities to the students. Uh, like uh, for example, I in an article, uh, the firing of a homosexual teacher um, in a middle school. So I decided to run a remedial writing uh, curriculum based on uh, that theme of should we, should we expel gay teachers from our middle school. I asked the, um, the students there to um, study the issue and then to write a script that we would then videotape, but we had a small TV studio at the college, and they would write the script and we would put a, uh, a homosexual teacher on trial in the script. Now, remember, this has not happened in their everyday life. So, you know, my development year by year was to test uh, new directions. I first started... Um, with uh, you, uh, figuring out how they spoke about things and what they were talking about in everyday life. Then I began to uh, pose their themes as, uh, as uh, problems and test how far we can go with that. Then to move one step out of their concrete experience and pose things just outside as problems and so on. And this class of uh, all white guys, mostly from Brooklyn and Staten Island, uh, agreed to make this uh, TV show with me. And I invited my best friend, who was a gay uh, activist, I invited him to come and play the homosexual teacher who would be put on trial. And uh, it was a very raw and uh, very uh, aggressive exchange that we had because uh, some of the male students are very hostile, very homophobic. Some were very tolerant. And uh, they eventually just uh, they wrote this script, but then they abandoned the script and just started arguing with each other on tape. On, on TV, and I had no idea, I, just, I had, you know, of course me, I'm like the utopian, I had scripted it that uh, my gay teacher was uh, not fired and kept. That was, that was the end that I wanted the script to show. They abandoned the script, and as we kept yelling at each other, I had no idea how this was going to end, and I thought, am I going to make an, a homophobic document here that's going to travel around? I thought that they might vote to fire the guy. So I just sat there and I wasn't sure what to say. And they argued and argued out. And then I said, "Okay, time to vote." And uh, they, the my friend who was playing the teacher, he, he survived by one or two votes, and he wasn't fired. And I was so relieved; I breathed so deeply that we were able to produce this video document. And he wasn't, he wasn't fired. So anyhow, that's that's sort of like what's what went on in those early years. These like, uh, you know, blundering in this direction or trying this testing this uh, option with, with uh, trying to draw students out in the longest critical utterances possible about uh, what things mean and uh, how, how we should think about this in the world or that in the world, but that it, not substituting the way I think about the world for the way they think about the world, but joining them in a very prolonged inquiry into problems that made sense to them, but for which we all had different opinions and seeing where did such a conversation go. Now, as that went on, some other, uh, another friend of mine on the faculty said to me, he said, you know, uh, after I was doing this about two or three years, he says, you know, what you're trying to do, uh, there's this guy in Brazil named Paulo Freire, and he wrote a book about it. You should read it. So I said, what's the book? And he said, the book is Pedagogy of the Oppressed. So a couple of years in, I bought the book and I started reading it and I said, yes, that's right. This, this guy has some of the uh, similar directions. So I, I had been moving in this direction of what I call critical literacy or critical pedagogy. And uh, Paulo Freire, of course, was way ahead. He had been doing it, or that was around 1970s. He'd been doing it for over 20, 20 years. And uh, so then I began studying his work in, in earnest and uh, used it to, uh, as a foundation for writing my first book, that, uh, The Critical Teaching in Everyday Life. Now, uh, I also was traveling around the country doing workshops of teachers and giving uh, talks at the end of the 70s, and uh, I, c- I was invited by a, a community college uh, graduate program at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor in 1981, I think it was, to come give a talk and run some workshops for a critical... Uh, for. Um, community college teachers who were coming back to get a new degree that was called the Doctor of Arts, the DA degree. They were uh, not required to write dissertations, but they were, um, they were going to do a lot of research. So I came and I spent a few days out there with them, had a wonderful time, and uh, stayed in touch with some folks. And then uh, about a year or so later, somebody writes me that they, uh, they handed Paulo Freire a copy of my first book, Critical Teaching in Everyday Life, uh, which I thought was wonderful, but uh, I, don't, I didn't know what to expect from it. Anyhow, about, um, about a year or so later, I, get, I open my mailbox in uh, Manhattan, and I see uh, a, an aerogram with foreign postage on it, and there's a letter from Paulo Freire direct to me. So I, you know, I nearly had a cardiac arrest there at the mailbox, thinking, why would Paulo Freire write to me? So I opened the letter, and it turns out he says uh, somebody gave him a book, in Michigan that I had written, telling them that there's some, there are people in America and this guy who, you know, was sure who is uh, trying to do you know, your method here in North America, and you might be interested. So he took the book back to Brazil, and th- he actually read it. And then he wrote me a letter, and he said it was wonderful, and he said he thanks me, f- this was his, his sentence, he thanks me for all the beautiful words, that was the sentence he wrote. And uh, so he said he wanted to know if we could meet sometime, you know, because he's in America a lot. So I wrote him back, and um, he travels around a lot. And uh, then I think it was uh, late 82, I think it was, he, I got a call and pick up the phone. It was Paula Freire, and he says, I'm in Stanford, and I'm doing a, uh, at the Stanford School of Ed, I'm doing a, a doctoral seminar. He, he wanted me to fly in and uh, do the seminar with him in the summer of 82. So I thought this was wonderful, but I was in the middle of writing um, another book, and I uh, had a grant to do it, and I was, uh, had a deadline because classes were starting. You see, what, what happens when you teach at a working-class college, the teaching load is very heavy. The classes are very large, and the committee assignments and so on, you have a lot to do, so you're not allowed to be a scholar and to produce uh, publications, because that's only for the folks who attend elite un- research universities. So I was trying to do all this stuff while attending, like, you know, a third-rate public working-class college, and so I, I was always busy and I used every day of my uh, time off between semesters and every day of the summer writing 12 hours a day because I had no I couldn't get any grants any free time so he calls me in the middle of him I'm writing my second book and I really can't get away so he's uh, I said I can't I haven't I can't fly out so he says all right he says "in, in six months I'm going to be at Amherst and when I get to Amherst I'm doing I'm going to be in residence there for a month in the school of ed and he says he wants me to come out there and join him so I said, "All right, six months. I'll be. I'll join you in Amherst." I uh, figured there was enough lead time for me to get everything in order. So then, in February of '83, you know, he arrived in Amherst. He contacted me, and I found out where he was. And then I said, "All right, I'll come." I took a bus up there, and um, that's when I first met him. Uh, he uh, told me where he was, and I came and I met him in a pizza parlor in Amherst. And I uh, parked my car and I walked to the parking lot. I looked through the window of the restaurant. And I saw this uh, bearded uh, man uh, sitting at a table, uh, sitting with uh, some students, and I came in. And when I entered the restaurant, he stood up and came over and embraced me, and I nearly passed out. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know how that little man held me up, but there, you know, he's, he's a short guy, but I was very overwhelmed. So he immediately made room at the table, and so on and so on, and insisted that I had to uh, join him in the sessions he was leading, and I, I just was overwhelmed and honored and uh, really not really up to the task and I had to find uh, ways to make it through it. So I began appearing on stage with him at at Amherst and the first time I appeared it was like it left me breathless. He introduced me to the crowd as his son and I thought oh my god I'm not gonna I'm not gonna survive this week you know and so I'm discontinuous and uh, so I had to try to uh, maintain my focus and say things that were worthy being listened to and this and that so I spent that month of February more or less coming back three times from New York and working with him in Amherst, and uh, we were talking a lot, and I, um, I listened to every presentation he made. I studied the way he answered the questions, how he framed uh, his understanding of what the problem was, and as uh, so I was trying to get like a postdoctoral education that I needed very badly and that I never had a chance to get, and suddenly had this great, great good fortune to be in a mentoring situation with Paulo Freire where by attending his sessions, uh, I could actually get pulled forward into how to think about all these issues of critical pedagogy, critical literacy, the politics of education, what does it mean for movements and learning to intersect, and so on, and so on. And then uh, by the end of his month there, I just... uh, Um, impulsively said to Paolo, I said, uh, you know, you and I, we should write a book together. And then he looks at me and he says, let's start today, he says. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm not ready, you know, for this. Uh, So I said, all right, look, uh, I tell him I think that the book should be based on the questions that American teachers ask most often about critical pedagogy. He says, that's perfect, he said, let's do that. So then I went home that night and I st- stayed up late and I began to n- write down some of the questions that I heard continually around the country when I was traveling that teachers were asking me about how, what is critical pedagogy, how do we do it, how does it differ from traditional pedagogy, what are our goals, how do we train for it, and how do we handle it in different curriculum subjects and so on, there were a whole series of questions the teachers were, a- were asking that were very difficult and that I was struggling year by year to teach myself the answer. So I said, let's do it. He said, that's a great idea. And so you, you can see the book that we wrote together. And he said, let's do, he, he named it a talking book. He said, let's start with the question, and then you and I will have very long conversations, and then we'll edit the conversations, and we'll produce the, a talking book. And so the two of us produced the first talking book he ever did with a collaborator. It, it came out in 1986 called The Pedagogy for Liberation. And you'll notice, if you look at the book, that every chapter starts with a key question that was being asked at that time by teachers who wanted to know how to practice uh, critical pedagogy. We spent two years in constant work on this book. Every time Paulo Freire uh, came north to North America, I would drop everything and fly in wherever he was, and we would use every available hour to write and edit the book. And I did this for two years, wherever he was showing up in America, and then at the end of two years, we agreed that we had a manuscript that was ready for the press, and it came it came out, and uh, it's still in print 30 years later, and it's gone through 10 or 11 printings, so it's been a very popular book. It's uh, got a lot of Very wide circu, very wide circulation. So it, uh, for me, it did a great deal in forcing me to just uh, concentrate very carefully on what was critical literacy, and how did we do it, and why did we do it, and what were the unanswered questions in trying to do it.
0: So, huh? The tapes. Oh yeah. Do you still do you have the tapes for
1: it? Or talk to us about the tapes? Yeah, I do somewhere. I think yeah, the tapes we talked. Yeah. Oh, I might it. Well, I used to keep carrying them for thirty years. they might be upstairs in the carton. Yeah. I found it so interesting when Ben first started talking
0: to me. He's like, "Oh, they they have all these tapes that they exchange." So I just wanting to hear about like how that whole
1: process I came about. Somewhere, yeah. And uh, we, uh, one of my best friends, came up and was a techie. We we did a lot. We did taping everywhere I went with him. But we did the first major taping in the summer of 1984 in Vancouver, where he was in residence for the summer for adult education. He had 60 adult education students in the summer of 1984. So with a friend, I flew out there, and we, we moved in with him. And uh, every, he, every morning from 8 to 12, he had an adult education session with the students, and I attended that. And uh, occasionally he would ask me to answer some of the questions that came up, like for this scholar or that question and so on. And then at 12 uh, o'clock, he went off to all kinds of interviews with the mass media. And then uh, a a few days later, I started getting invited onto TV and radio, so I started being interviewed also on radio and TV. I may have a videotape of that, or do I have a photograph? So we were busy. Then about 4 or 5 o'clock, his work was over. And what we would do is uh, I would come to his apartment, and every night we went to eat at a Brazilian or Portuguese restaurant because Paula Freire likes three things more than anything. He likes uh, fechoada, which is the national bean dish of, uh, of uh, Brazil. He likes arugula, which I cannot explain, but, uh, and then he likes um, um, a Beaujolais. So any place, oh, and then liver. So his ideal dinner is uh, liver, fried liver, uh, bean stew, and arugula with glasses of Beaujolais. And uh, that's it, if you give them to him, he's, he doesn't want anything anything uh, else. So we went every night to eat. First, about five to eight or five to nine every night. For three or four hours, we would tape questions. Then we would go to eat a late dinner. And then we would get back about midnight, and everybody would fall asleep. And then we'd be up at 7 a.m. again, because this seminar started every day. And that went on for about two weeks. Accumulated a lot of of tapes. And um, then I took all the tapes back to New York uh, in August, and um, I rented a machine. Oh, I bought my first computer, uh, which this was like, you know, the new world. I bought a computer and it was this very primitive machine but it was so much faster than anything you could do on a typewriter that it helped. So I had a computer and then I bought a um, I forget what they called it then you had you put the tape into a thing and you had a pedal on your foot and you had earphones and you could you listen to the tape and so I listened and then I, I would press I would press the butt- the uh, foot pedal. It would go on for about 12, 15, 20 seconds. I would hear what he said then I would type. The, I produced a transcript from all the tapes with this uh, machine that I, I rented. And eventually, all the tapes, I had all the tapes into a transcript. And uh, then he came back to Amherst. He was kept re- reappearing in Amherst. He went to Michigan once. Uh, and I would show up with the tapes, and, with the uh, printed transcript. And then we would go over it page by page. And we would decide if, uh, if either of us had answered the question properly. Sometimes he was unhappy with his answers, and he wasn't He'd say something in Portuguese, and he wasn't quite sure of the English version. So then what I had to do is I had to find a Portuguese translator who would join us for the editing sessions. Because um, I speak Spanish, I didn't understand uh, some, his Portuguese idiom. So then he would say it to her. Then she would say out loud, the Portuguese translator, would give me a literal translation of what he said. Then I would write the literal translation down on a pad, and I would then um, transform it into colloquial English expressions. That is, it would come out sounding like uh, a robot, you know, like a literal translation or something. And I wanted it to sound like colloquial conversational speech. So I would come up with a few versions of it, and I would read them back to him. And then he would pick which conversational version of that item he thought sounded best to him. So then I would enter that into, into the transcript. Sometimes he thought that he uh, very badly expressed some ideas. He, um, he once, uh, at a moment of frustration, he uh, said that um, he thought that, um, you know, that the restrictions we all live under uh, create sort of like an invisible cage around us that, that set limits on what we think is possible. And that in a country like Brazil where he lives, uh, the material conditions are so poor and so bad that he would, he would liken Brazil to like an iron cage because uh, life is so hard there, and poor people are treated so badly. He said, but here in America, you're such a, a wealthy country, and so on and so on. He says, the difference is that you live in a golden cage, and I live in an iron one. So I actually thought this was very, very beautiful, and I, so I concluded. Then when he read it over, he thought, you know, it's too extreme. He said, uh, f- it's, uh, people are not going to receive it very well, so he wanted me to take out that, that kind of reference and, and say it a different say it a different way. So that was the process of how we kept going uh, back and forth. Sometimes I would take it home and uh, he had long statements. And um, uh, at the end of the statement, because he's operating a lot in English, uh, he would be uh, linguistically tired at the end of his long statements. So it was uh, not a good time for me to like question him further or to enter with my remarks because he was too tired to be a responsive Partner, so I would take it home, and then I would I would listen at home, and then I would write a response at home, and then when I saw him next, I would show him the response I thought fit his comments, and then because he was more energetic, he got the more he used English. After a few hours, he couldn't function in English anymore, so that's when we had to go have wine and bean stew, and it was over for the day. So then I would come back early in the session and re- show him the new content, and then ask him, you know, when he was still, who was still. Um, fresh. it went on for two years, and uh, it was very intense. And um, I remember uh, one July Fourth, it was so it was so memorable for me because uh, you know New York City has uh, fireworks on July Fourth that are spectacular, uh, and the, the barges come up uh, the uh, Hudson River and line up, and uh, it's the, the sky is lit up and so on. So anyhow, um, I woke up very early on July Fourth, and uh, I had to produce. A transcript of the uh, talk uh, because I was leaving soon the next day for whatever for meet Paolo up in Amherst or something and as uh, so I got up at 8 a.m. and I remember uh, as I was sitting there typing mobs of people were coming into Manhattan and flowing under my window and I was just I was sitting there all day in my underwear typing up these transcripts and I, re-ty- I retyped it three times in that day over 16 hours without leaving the chair and then by the end at 16 at at midnight when I finally could barely stand up these the crowds were coming back from the fireworks it was all over and the crowds were moving in the opposite direction.
0: So what is your favorite memory of Paulo Freire? Uh,
1: Once when I uh, flew out to Michigan to work with him on our uh, book uh, I landed to discover that Paulo was uh, sick and that he had passed out on the airplane flying in from Brazil. And uh, Paulo had, a, you know, a number of conditions um, that, uh, you know, eventually uh, led to his uh, passing at the end of the 90s, but they, they were developing all along, and uh, he had some kind of, like, a blood pressure um, disorder. And uh, he stood up in an airplane and passed out, and they caught him, and they sat him down, and he recovered. <clears throat> and then they... Um, uh, they let him go, but they insisted that every morning he had to go to the health center in Ann Arbor to have his blood pressure checked, and he agreed to do that. So when I got out there, he, he asked me to accompany him to uh, the health center every morning. To, so we would go there, we get his pressure checked, and then we would go have breakfast together and plan the day and whatever. Uh, so the first time we went there, um, there was this um, uh, very friendly uh, African-American nurse Uh, It was early in the morning, not too many people around. It was kind of casual there, and she had some time, and Paolo came in, I came in, and uh, we told her what the situation was, so she took care of him. And while she's fitting the uh, collar on his arm to check his blood pressure, she looks at Paolo, and she says, Honey, honey, I love the color of your face, she says to him. And so uh, he uh, he looked at me. He didn't quite understand what she was telling him, so I... I said it in Spanish to him because he understands Spanish. So I translated it into Spanish. When he realized that this black woman loved the color of his dark skin, he, he was so happy. He hugged her. She hugged him. He had, he had been mistaken for a black person. And he thought, what a great day, you know, like this. Because he said, he, said, um, he used to say that he's, he's not quite sure that he's a white man he used to say uh, frequently, and he liked to identify it because uh, you know, the Brazilian population is, has a great spectrum of color, and there's plenty of white folks from European origin, but there's plenty of dark-skinned Africans, especially in the northeast of Brazil where he comes from, and folks of all colors in between. So for him to be included by this nurse in, in their people, the rest of the day he was just happy.
0: This is the end of part one of our conversation. Check back next week for part two, where we talk more about critical pedagogy, contemporary social movements, and the state of higher education. Co-executive producers of This Rhetorical Life are Carrie Ann Soto and Ben Kiebrick. Additional production and editing by Tamara Isak, Kate Siegfried, Yanir Rodriguez, Dylan Rolo.